Nichols, who is now day three. Day three. Day three is the chief of the division in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Denver Health Medical Center. So, no longer in the nicest weathered city in America, San Diego. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, so David is, is, is really the leading thought leader, I think, in the United States in viral resistance and HCV to DAAs and is leading um, the push for the ASOD IDCA guidelines section on, on, on NS5A resistant primer. And so you're going to get, a, I think, a, a highlight of that uh, today. So welcome. Thanks, Susanna. Um, my pleasure to be here, and I know we've already had some kind of questions uh, hinting at issues with resistance, so hopefully this will be enlightening, and uh, again, hopefully we'll have a little time at the end to, to take your questions, because that's a lot of times where I find um, really most interesting is to hear what questions you have, all of you have about resistance. Okay, so these are my disclosures. So these are our learning objectives today. Um, I'm going to start out kind of comparing and contrasting, and hopefully after this you'll be able to compare and contrast HIV and hepatitis C in terms of their resistance potential and how resistance is generated. And I know a lot of you are already familiar with HIV probably in resistance. Um, we'll describe the assays that are available to detect RABs. Um, and then talk a little bit about um, how RABs impact, um, how prevalent they are and how they impact our treatment approaches in hepatitis C. So maybe at the most basic level, we'll start out, and Susanna alluded to this. As you can see, I'm going to come down on the side of calling them RAVs, resistance-associated variants. There is some uh, back and forth about what they should really be called. And I think, again, with the HIV background, a lot of you have, you already know this, but you know, when we denote a RAV, a resistance-associated variant, we're talking about amino acid changes, which result in a drug being less active or resistant. Um, and they're designated based on which viral protein we're talking about, so NS3, NS5A. And then they're denoted as generally the consensus amino acid appears first, the position within that viral gene, and then the amino acid variant that presumably confers resistance. Um, it's always important to remember that resistance is really, we, we define it or characterize it in vitro. So it's usually what fold loss in activity or how much more drug do you need to use to get the same effect in vitro but then it's the last part is the important part that we, we then have to make clinical correlations. So just because there's that in vitro change doesn't necessarily mean it may impact clinical outcomes. And that's where the kind of rubber meets the road, and that's where we need well-performed clinical trials really to know what the clinical impact is of some of these resistant variants. And for a lot of them, we don't really have much data, as we'll talk about. Um, there was a question earlier asking about baseline RABs or RABs that occur without prior drug exposure, and they do occur. Um, they're probably most clinically significant for NS5A inhibitors, and we'll come back to that. Um, and those are really polymorphisms then, right, that just happen to be at one of the sites that's also key for drug action. So these are kind of what I would lay out as my general resistance concepts for hepatitis C. First, the, that point we just talked about, so HCV RAVs can be present without drug exposure, so they're naturally existing. We don't necessarily in hep C think they're transmitted drug resistance. In other words, it's not that somebody else was treated, failed, and then transmitted the virus. We really think they just kind of naturally occur, and I'll talk about why that is. Um, they do impact treatment responses in specific situations, but it is in specific situations. And we'll drill down more on that, but then we're talking about what specific RAV is it, and then what regimen are you going to use, and then what does that patient look like otherwise? Were they treatment experienced? Do they have cirrhosis? These other negative predictors that Mike alluded to and several of the speakers have alluded to. And so it, it's not just as simple as do they have a RAV or don't they, and what am I going to do? It's, it's much more complicated than that. Um, 
Resistance is not absolute, though. That's the other thing in hepatitis C. With HIV, you know, maybe M184V aside, where you still might use 3TC and things like that, in HCV, we'll often proceed with the drug even though the virus is quote-unquote resistant to it or is predicted to have high-level resistance. Again, NS5As are the best case. You may have NS5A resistance, and if you do, you're probably still going to be using an NS5A-based regimen. So it's not absolute. And again, these issues of patient characteristics are really just as important or not more, if not more so than RABs. And that we'll talk at the end very briefly, or I don't even know if I have much in here about future regimens, but they are improving on resistance profiles. So to compare and contrast HIV and hepatitis C, this is kind of a, a schematic or a model of the in vivo replication dynamics, or what we can defi divine anyway from studies. Um, and so obviously this is hepatitis C. These are your hepatocytes on the left. These are infected ones. These are uninfected ones. And a couple things about hepatitis C. The, the free virions have a very short half-life in, in serum or in plasma, about 45 minutes. Um, then if you go on and uh, have a, a, a naive cell that you reinfect, um, the generation time for kind of turnover is maybe about seven days. That's highly variable. It depends on the um, patient. But then once a, a hepatocyte is infected, we really don't have a good idea of how long that hepatocyte survives, actually. Um, it's certainly on the order of weeks, if not longer. It depends on how much inflammation, what else is going on, how much death there might be. But the, the big contrast is, while actively infected CD4 T cells with HIV live for a day or less, and then they're killed, but there's this other, this long-lived reservoir. And that's the whole problem, right, with, with cure of HIV that Mike alluded to earlier is this long-lived reservoir. Whereas in HCV, um, we either can cure hepatocytes, in other words, kind of remove the virus from the hepatocyte without the hepatocyte dying, and that probably does happen with our new DA therapies. Or if there is an extra hepatic reservoir, which has been controversial, but if B cells are infected or other uh, immune cells, the, the available data, anyway, suggests, at the very least, that reservoir it does not live longer than an infected hepatocyte, which is the key for curing the infection, right? Uh, and all this data is divined from transplant studies where they remove the liver and you look at decay of viral kinetics, and in a portion of patients, it appears there's a plateau suggesting there's another reservoir somewhere and it's not solely the liver. Um, and then um, within the hepatocyte, obviously, hepatitis C is only in the cytoplasm. It doesn't integrate, never gets the nucleus. Again, the reason we can cure hepatitis C and we can't cure um, HIV. And just the last point to bring up on this slide is this is data from Bob Silicano's lab. They've published this several times and kind of looked repeatedly, but this is the latent reservoir and its half-life, which seems to grow every time they look at it. I think it lives longer and longer, but this is the whole idea, again, of why we cannot cure HIV is this long-lived latent reservoir. Even under what we think is fully suppressive therapy, it does not seem to decay uh, to an appreciable extent. Um, and this just kind of puts it in a more of a tabular form. Um, both these are very error-prone viruses, but again, hep C does turn over to a higher level in patients every day, and that, you can think of that as the engine driving resistance development, how much viral turnover and replication there is. Polymerase is probably slightly more error-prone than HIV, though they're both error-prone. But in hep C, it acts twice, right? You go from positive sense to negative, and then negative back to positive, and it's that same error-prone polymerase. Whereas HIV, you just have RT acting once, then you get an integrated proviral DNA that then is replicated with more fidelic mechanisms in the cell. Um, so there are some differences there. Um, but again, coming back to the main uh, difference, obviously, is a dynamic replication unit, as I would call it, in hep C, and the fact that we can obviously cure this infection, where, again, with HIV, it's a lifelong prospect of suppression, but not cure. And um, HIV is thought of as a diverse virus, obviously. This is a, you know, a figure that's been reproduced a lot of times from Stuart Ray. 
But it, just to remind you that Hep C is a much more diverse virus. If the, you talk about HIV group M, which about 90% of HIV worldwide is group M, you look at the diversity within all of group M, it's about the same as genotype 1 diversity in Hep C. And this is why a lot of our earlier direct-acting antivirals, which were developed against genotype 1, did not have great activity against these other genotypes. You can think of them almost as being different viruses in some ways. Um, the nucleotide difference in the sequence is going to be 35% or more between these different genotypes. So, um, again, now that we've kind of gotten better at making drugs, they are now, we're seeing more and more pangenotropic drugs, but just remember how diverse hepatitis C is. And then this was really just uh, kind of a mathematics exercise that um, Alan Perelson's group did, just looking at the amount of viral replication and how error-prone the polymerase was, essentially saying that presumably in every patient that's infected, just given the viral burden in their body and the error rate of the virus, they've probably got all possible double mutant viruses that could be created somewhere in their body. Now, most of those are probably not going to survive, so they never come to a level where we could detect them with sequencing, but they're probably there. And then within the first day of selective therapy under some type of drug, if you're only using one drug, you're going to quickly select a third resistant variant. So based on modeling or mathematics, you might say we need a resistance barrier of at least three mutations in a regimen to be able to suppress, you know, thinking like we do with TB or something like that. Um, I think this is really about where we've actually come down. It, maybe not as always three drugs, but some of our drugs like nucleotides are so potent and have such a high barrier to resistance, they probably essentially fulfill a couple barrier um, limitation, uh, need with one drug, if that makes sense. So another way to compare and contrast are the targets, and that's another place where I think we have a lot of difference in hepatitis C and HIV, particularly with first-generation protease inhibitors. So this is a schematic of the hepatitis C protease, and this is, I think, telaprevir, one of, one of the first inhibitors on top that maybe looks like a macrocyclic. But just to make the point, the hepatitis C enzyme active site was very shallow and exposed, so it was hard for rational drug design or, or um, process-based drug design to make tight binding molecules that utilized a lot of different contacts. There were a few key contacts, but if you got a mutation in those, the drug quickly lost activity. Whereas the HIV aspartyl protease is a homodimer, and the active site is a pocket deep down inside the enzyme that has a lot of structures around, a lot of places to make attachments. And that's, we, you know, kind of drug development quickly became very good at making potent HIV protease inhibitors, including ones that were active with you had to accumulate many resistance mutations before you lost activity. Now, again, as we've gotten better and better and have newer and newer drugs, we are getting better with hep C, but I would still say, you know, we don't have something like a, you know, a boost of darunavir where, you know, you really need to accumulate tons of mutations before you really lose activity. And so some of it has to do just with the substrate you're trying to design your drug for. Um, and then the last point I'm going to use to compare and contrast is, is our minority variants. Um, we've kind of alluded to this a little bit, and we'll go into it. With hep C, I think we're still learning, but the question is, you know, if you have resistance, at what proportion of the viral species does it need to be in, or what proportion of your patient's virus needs to have that resistance when it's really going to now confer an increased risk of failure with treatment with that regimen? And so there, there's a fair bit of HIV data. Most of it surrounds NNRTIs, but there is evidence in HIV that minority variants, and here I'm saying anything present in less than about 20% of the viral population down to 1%. So kind of in that 1 to 20 range, there are a number of studies that suggest with HIV, for instance, with the K103N or NNRTI resistance, that those minor variants do adversely impact therapy if patients subsequently get an NNRTI. Um, this was um, a cohort from the first study, which looked at treatment-naive patients, giving them a number of different regimens, NNRTI or PI-based. And they did two things. They did population sequencing, and then they did ultra-deep sequencing and looked down to 1%. 
And what they found was if you had like a K103N or NNRTI resistance in a minority population, they were, those patients were significantly more likely to fail. So in other words, NNRTI resistance at 1% to 20% did seem to impact clinical outcomes. Now, if you had NNRTI resistance at population level, and still got treated with an NNRTI, then your risk of failure was like 13-fold. So there still is a dose response, but these minor variants do have impact. This was ACTG398. It was an early salvage study. These were patients who had failed PI therapy and were getting a, a dual PI retreatment with a Bacavir, uh, a Defavir at that time, plus an NNRTI. Um, and again, the same thing emerged. If patients had never seen an NNRTI before, they suppressed more robustly. Then if they had been treated in the past with an NNRTI, and about 40% in this study had, but their genotypic resistance testing didn't indicate any NNRTI resistance, um, but then when you went back and did allele-specific PCR, they had low-level resistance, they were more likely to have a blunted antiviral response. So I think with HIV, again, at least with NNRTIs, there is evidence that minor variants impact responses. So is the same true with hep C? And in general, I would say the answer to that is no. Um, I'm gonna, there are some caveats, or uh, the major caveat is we don't have a lot of data. What I'm showing you here are two different studies that have already been mentioned. Susanna showed a little bit from this recent publication in gastroenterology of the experience of baseline resistance in responses to lodiposphere sofosbuvir. And what you see here, so the gray bars are the response rates in patients who had NS5A RABs, they were specifically lodiposphere resistance associated variants, at 1% level. So with deep sequencing, they were detected somewhere above 1%. And then the dark gray bars are taking that same ultra-deep sequencing data, but only identifying those where the resistance was present in 15% of the viral population or more. And what you see in general <clears throat> is that patients, when you look at the 1% level, the SVR rates actually go up, suggesting that when you go down to 1%, you're finding more patients that respond than don't respond that have that resistant variant. Does that make sense? You're identifying more patients, when you look at 1% level, obviously, but the majority of them actually go on to respond, so you bring the SVR rate up. Um, in other words, it's too sensitive. Um, whereas at 15% level, you know, the responses are generally lower. This is data with Elbosphere grosoprevir in genotype 1A. Um, first, it shows you, you know, obviously how you look is going to influence what percentage of patients have resistance at baseline. If you do population sequencing and only talk about resistant variants to Elbosphere specifically that cause more than a five-fold shift, it was 5% of their population. If you go down to a 1% level with the same definition or the same RAVs, now you're going to have 10%, so you about double. Interestingly, that's what the HIV data also looks like when you go from one to population. It about doubles the percentage of patients that have resistance. Um, but then if you look at the response, it goes from 98 to 58%. And notice when you look at the 1% level, you don't see as much of a decrement. And here, if you actually look at the numbers, you identify... Um, 19 more patients that have resistance, but only find two more failures. So you're identifying 17 patients who have a RAV at 1% level, but went on to get an, a sustained response with 12 weeks. So again, you're identifying more that are going to do fine if you use the 1% level. Um, and I didn't tell you, but in this study, the difference between those, because this was a much bigger study, it was approaching 1,400, 1,500 patients, I think. There were about 110 more patients you found at the 1% level, and almost none of them uh, or few of them failed, were new ones that you identified. So clinical resistance, here's our first audience response question. And good, that thing is right in between the choices. So for which regimen or circumstance here is there a label recommendation? So in the, the package insert or FDA label to perform NS5A RAV testing. And I think Susanna alluded to this one maybe. So um, GT1A with prod, GT1A with Elbosphere grosoprevir. 
um, or GT1 treatment experienced with cirrhosis, with LDV-SOF, with SOF-VEL, or there's no label that recommends RAV testing, so go ahead. Okay, good. All right, so 65% of you are right on in terms of what the label recommendation is. Now we'll talk a little bit more. There may be some other scenarios where in the guidelines we kind of took a different stance in terms of recommendations, but this is the only label indication is GT1A prior to Elbosphere Grisoprovir. And it's for NS5A revs. So um, as we talk about clinical resistance, you know, I think it's always nice to look at the different classes. Um, this is always in flux, though, as well as new members of any group come out. They tend to have better resistance profiles than their predecessors. So protease inhibitor is obviously the first class we had available in the clinic. They're very potent. Um, initial, we're not necessarily pangenotypic. Later variants are starting to be more and more pangenotypic. And as we go along again, grisoprovir has a, a better resistance profile than its predecessors. Grisoprovir is active against the R155K in genotype 1A. Um, there, with grisoprovir, the main variants that are selected are the D168 variants, which tend to be a little less fit. Um, NS5B nucleotides are the, you know, they get the A in the class. They're the standouts for their resistance profile. They're extremely potent, pangenotypic, and have a very high, if not extremely high, resistance barrier. Um, really, you, you don't see resistance to nucleotide inhibitors. We know it can occur, but in less than 1% of patients with clinical failure to phosphorus, do you see the signature mutation in S282T. There are some other variants that seem to be enriched. It's not really clear what they contribute to, to subsequent treatment failures. I'm not going to talk about the non-nucleosides. Desobivir is the only one we have. I think it's the only one we're going to have, and they're not going to be a prominent class of drugs, I don't think, going forward. So NS5A inhibitors is where most of the action is clinically with resistance. They're very potent. They tend to be pangenotypic or nearly pangenotypic. There are some differences, particularly with activity against genotypes 2 and 3. Lodiposphere is really not active at all against genotype 3. Um, and then, again, decladosphere and velpatosphere are really the, the standout pangenotypics with you know, use in all genotypes. And the same thing, I would, character, I would pretty much lump these four together in terms of their resistance profile, and the, they, they generally have a low barrier to resistance. Lodiposphere is probably the lowest if you're going to pick. Um, but then velpatosphere is the, the first of kind of maybe at least a generation 1.5 in NS5A inhibitors in terms of resistance. It is better against most, but the Y93, as we'll talk about, is still kind of its Achilles heel, if you will, in terms of resistance and the one we worry about. So I'm only going to spend a slide or two talking about NS3 resistance, and I've titled this Why It's Not a Big Deal. Um, first, if patients who haven't been exposed previously to protease inhibitor, you really don't need to worry about NS3 resistance at all. There's no reason to do baseline resistance testing in somebody who's not been exposed to a PI. Because RAVs, at least RAVs at key positions, so anything besides the Q80K, which is a polymorphism, are not going to be found in appreciable percentages. It's all going to be less than 1%. Um, and again, the Q80K, even in our era of DA therapy, where it's a nucleotide plus semeprevir, I don't think really has much of an impact. If you're using FDA-labeled treatment durations, right, the place it was seen as an impact is if you went shorter than would be recommended. Um, and then after failure, they're lost relatively quickly. I put lost in quotes because, you know, I don't think we really know are they truly gone, even if they drop to a level below we commonly detect, say, with population sequencing or even deep sequencing. And then the last one, probably most important, there's plenty of non-PI-based options, at least for patients who have failed maybe just pegylated interferon plus a PI um, that are well-proven to be efficacious in this population. This is just a picture of the decay. Again, I don't want to belabor this. I want to move on to other stuff. And um, 
there was a hint in the target study that patients who had previously failed a PI, if you retreated them with sofsimeprevir, that they had a significant impact. Now, in target, they didn't have resistance testing on all these people, so we don't know. And they didn't have a mean duration, so we don't know how long ago they were exposed to their PI and did they have genotypic PI resistance left. But as I said, why give yourself a headache? Just, you know, if you have somebody that failed tilaprovir plus PEG and RIBA, just go to a non-PI-based regimen and don't worry about it, okay? <clears throat> so NS5A wraps. This is where um, the money is. And NS5A RABs, the clinical significance is really primarily concentrated in patients with genotype 1A and genotype 3. Um, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time talking about. So baseline resistance or baseline NS5A RABs, people who are not previously exposed to NS5A inhibitors, you're going to find resistance in about 10 to 15% of patients. Now, that number varies widely, and you have to be careful. Whenever you're looking at a percentage of RABs, you have to look carefully at how the, what they're considering a RAV. So is it you know, drug-specific, or is it anything that's ever been described? And then how they're sequencing. Are we talking 1% level, 10, 15, or population? But I would say looking at drug-specific RAVs by population sequencing, it's going to be somewhere around 10%, probably. Um, actually, slightly more prevalent in 1B, but we don't care in general. So um, even the Y93, which is found fairly frequently in 1Bs, doesn't seem to have a clinical impact, at least in somebody who's being treated for the first time. Now, if they failed a DAA regimen, I'm going to care. I'm not sure it's going to change my management, but I'm going to care. Um, and then if they do fail after exposure to NS5A inhibitor, I'll show you the numbers, but the majority are going to then have resistance to NS5A inhibitors. Um, and this is probably one of the key things, I think, and Susanna alluded to this several times, is there's still a lot of uncertainty about how to proceed, but I think at the very least you should be going for as long as you can if somebody's failed a DA regimen and has resistance and you should be using ribavirin. Does resistance testing add a lot more to that? I, you know, even though I, I like resistance, I'm not sure. I mean, we recommend it. I think we all kind of want to have all the information and, and make choices if we can based on some of that other data, but Susanna's alluded to this and showed you some of the regimens, and we'll talk a little bit more about it. This is the nomenclature slide. Um, again, I'm not in John Michelle's camp, so I, I like RAVs better um, than RASs. It's just easier to say. But um, you just have to watch out for RAPs if they're reported because they're polymorphisms. So that's any change at a, at, a, at a site that's been associated with NS5A resistance, even if it's a change to an amino acid that doesn't cause resistance, they're counted. And this is when you'll see the numbers 40 50% have baseline NS5A RAPs. But again, what we care about are drug-specific RAPs. And that's really, I think, where the field should go, and that's what should be reported. Um, for any particular regimen when you're looking at responses. The specific amino acid changes that affect that drug in vitro. Um, we still don't even know what cutoff is right. Should it be ones that are 100-fold change or those are the ones we care about? The data kind of care about that's what the data kind of suggests. Some of these lower-fold changes may not be of impact, but we don't really know what the appropriate cutoff is. This just illustrates how, depending on what definition you use, you can change this number drastically, going from 5% with population sequencing and Elbosphere-specific RAVs to deep sequencing and clear, considering NS5A class RAVs, you can go from 5% resistance at baseline to 34. So again, you just have to pay attention, and I think this is where we should be with what is clinically significant, is down on that end. There's also a difference, I think, between baseline RAVs, so RAVs without prior drug exposure to that class, and ones that are selected after failure. There's a little bit of data to support some of these. Typically, when the patients have baseline NS5A resistance, they haven't been exposed, they'll have one mutation that's found. There'll be a lot of other polymorphisms if you get your report, but most usually there's only one, maybe two. Whereas patients, once they fail a regimen, usually there's multiple RAVs, two or three, and there is some evidence 
from some detailed studies with deep sequencing or single genome sequencing, then they're linked. In other words, they're on the same RNA genome. Um, and they probably do enhance resistance, maybe compensatory or help fitness as well. They tend to be high fold change once they're selected, whereas you see more variable here. They're almost like immediately after failure, they're 99% of the viral population has the resistant mutation, where here it's more variable. And then again, once you've selected for a RAV, it's also just a fundamentally different patient now. Um, this is a patient that's the hardest to treat, and that's the place where RAVs, if they're going to have an impact, are going are to show it. So this is the rate of resistance selection by different regimens. If you have a very, what I would call, weak regimen, so this is lodiposphere combined with a, an early generation protease and a non-nuke. This was a pretty weak interferon-free regimen. And here, everybody who failed had NS5A resistance, and most of them had triple variants. They had three different NS5A RAVs. Um, whereas if you talk about, say, nucleotide-based therapy with soft lodiposphere, 75% have RAVs when they fail. And if you get a shorter exposure or shorter duration, you are less likely to have RAVs present. And not as many have triple RAVs here. They have a single or a double, things like that. So there are differences. Soft felpatosphere is 93%, but almost all the failures in that clinical program are in genotype 3 again, which is another kind of a different animal. And then the nuke-based triples, at least the studies that looked at very short durations, a lot of times when patients failed, they didn't have any RAVs. Um, maybe suggesting you were actively suppressing everything, you just didn't go long enough to get rid of the wild type kind of thing. But um, we need more data on that. As you go longer, you do start to see RAVs even with these triple-based therapies. So what's the available resistance testing? A lot of you probably already know this, because if you've tried to treat anybody with Elvisphere grisopria, your, your insurance provider probably made you send it if it was a genotype 1. There are two major assays available from major lab, lab corporations across the country, but they are fundamentally different in that one is done deep sequencing. And they, what they report to you, though, is our RAVs at a 10% level. So they've decided that 10% is the cutoff they're going to report. Um, the FDA has kind of come down and said 15%, um, but it's in there. And then um, the other one is a population-based assay um, with just standard RT-PCR sequencing, and it's a population assay, so presumably around 20% is what you're finding. Um, and they are genotype and subtype specific, so if you're a genotype 1 patient, you need to know the subtype, or you need to tell them so they can do it. Um, and then for genotype 3, so we don't have anything for 4, 5, or 6, or 2. And this is just an example. One is more of a printout that just tells you genotype 3. They usually run the genotype, um, and they tell you whether, based on the mutations that are found, whether here it's a Y93H, so they say resistance is predicted. And then this is the other. And the important thing here is I, I like this printout better because it says resistance possible. There's a large number of caveats down here just kind of telling you that even if you have resistance, it used to be red and it said resistant. And this is, I think, a better way because, again, this point that you're probably still going to be using an NS5A inhibitor even if you have NS5A resistance. So trying to change the reporting so you get away from that thought of, oh, it's resistant, I can't use that drug. So um, how long do NS5A RAVs last? This is data from that study I mentioned that used tegobavir, vidroposphere, and, and ledipasphere, whereas almost everybody had resistance when they failed. And if you looked out two years later, 85, 86% still had NS5A resistance. Now, not as many had triple variants. They did start to lose a couple, but most did not lose NS5A resistance altogether. Um, and then the other problem is there's a lot of cross-resistance with NS5A inhibitors, right? Red is bad, and so you can see these top um, five are the ones we have available. So you can see how velpatosphere is slightly different. But again, the NS, the, in genotype 1A, the Y93H still causes what we would consider high full change to velpatosphere. Not in 1B, and the other ones don't do as much. 
Now, these are some of the next generation ones that we're kind of eagerly awaiting. You can see they really appear to have truly different resistance profiles. They have near wild type activity for any single position variant. Now, we have learned from early phase two studies that you do get double variants and you get high fold change then, combinations of resistance mutations, but at least any single position, you don't see much of a change. So here's with Lodiposphere cephospor, this has been a kind of an ongoing saga or controversy. Do baseline RAVs, NS5A RAVs, affect LDV soft or not? I think the answer is clearly yes. The gastroenterology paper that Susanna presented earlier um, clearly shows that it does. This is actually different data with some of the same patients, but was presented in a more accessible fashion, I think. So I'd like to show this, because this is presented by what would be the recommended regimen for these populations. So in general, you can see in treatment-naive patients, there is really not much evidence that baseline NS5A resistance impacts LDV-SOF at all, regardless of uh, cirrhosis, anything else. Um, but in treatment-experienced patients, pretty consistently you see about a 10% decrement in patients with baseline NS5A lodiposphere reps. So these were lodiposphere-specific, but they looked at the 1% level. So if you're finding at population level, the difference is probably bigger. Um, and it holds, again, across treatment experience non-serotic patients where the recommendation is 12 weeks, 9% difference. Treatment experience serotics get 12 plus riba or 24, and in both cases you see this decrement. Um, this is some of the data that based on the guidelines we kind of had this recommendation that in treatment experience, particularly treatment experience serotics because they're the most vulnerable population, you should consider looking at baseline RAVs. The million dollar question is what do you do if you find them and that's where there's really no clear guidance about what you can do. Um, you know, do you go 24 plus RIBA? Not a lot of data to necessarily support that, but that is really kind of the only option you would have if you're going to use this regimen. Maybe you could switch, but again, most all are going to be uh, NS5A based, and I don't think I would go to SimSoft necessarily because you won't be able to get it. <clears throat> so Elbospheric Rosopter, we already alluded to this. You guys, most of you got the question right, that this is the only place where in the label it recommends baseline NS5A resistance testing. I've shown you this graphic already, but here's the data again, 98% versus 58% SVR if you have Elbosphere RAVs at a population level and you just do, it's a genotype 1A patient, 1A only, and this is, in this case, these were treatment-naive patients where they only got 12 weeks with no RIBA. And based on this data, as well as this combined analysis of, of their treatment-naive genotype 1A patients where they did a multivariate logistic regression, the only two factors that seemed to predict response were baseline RAVs and baseline viral load. Um, and I think it's based on that data and based on the large decrements, even though it's an absolute small number of patients, that the FDA, I think, appropriately came down on the side of recommending baseline NS5A RAV testing for any genotype 1A patient that's going to be considered for Elbosphere grisoprevir. If you find the baseline RAVs at positions 28, 30, 31, or 93, if you're still going to use that regimen, the recommendation right would be to do 16 weeks plus ribavirin or consider an alternative regimen with those baseline resistance mutations. So what about soft velpatosphere? This is uh, from a poster they presented at Easel of the whole soft vel program and baseline RAVs. So to orient you, in the pie, the, the lighter color are the percentage of patients who did not have baseline NS5A RAVs. The darker reddish brown here are the ones with baseline RAVs. And then the, the columns are the SVR rates in those patients. And at a 1% or 15% deep sequencing. So what you can see, overall, there was not a signal that baseline NS5A RAVs impacted soft velpatosphere. This is all 12 weeks, no RIBA. And then again, broken down by 1A and 1B, again, really no evidence. I mean, in the 1As, there's a slight tick off um, for one or two patients that failed. 
Um, but I still think pretty convincing overall from the astral study that there's not a clinical role for baseline resistance testing. But what you'll notice here is genotype 3 is still the problem child, right? Even with soft velpatosphere, um, down to 89% at the 1% cutoff for class RAVs, and then vel-specific RAVs is really just going to look at then A30K or Y93H. Um, and there, um, again, you see you're down to about 88% when you're talking about a near population cutoff of response. Um, so genotype 3 with SoftVel, and again, the guidelines kind of echo this, we feel like there is some room to optimize that therapy. Um, and so just briefly talk about RAVs and DA experience patients. A lot of you have seen this data. This was retreatment of patients who failed 8 to 12 weeks, where they got 24 weeks without RIBA. This was really the first retreatment study. And if they had baseline RAVs, their response was down at 60%. If you didn't have baseline resistance, it was 100%. Um, and seemed to be a dose response based on the type of RAV dropping off. Um, and this comes back to the point Mike raised in his first section was the issue of multiple negative predictors. And I think we could make the argument that maybe NS5A RAVs are another negative predictor by themselves in a patient without these other characteristics probably don't mean a lot, but if you start piling up a bunch of these, and I would say any patient who's failed a DAA-based therapy, an interferon-free DAA-based therapy, by definition probably has some of these or that's another severe negative predictor for response going forward. And then I think NS5A RAVs probably are clinically significant in that population. But as I alluded to this, you can do well um, probably with just extension and adding ribavirin. So this was from ION4, um, retreating nine of the, the 10 failures. And here, if you just extended the exact same therapy to 24 weeks and added riba, you did very well with eight of nine getting a response. Small numbers, um, but I think reassuring, there's other data that I'm not going to show you with soft velpatosphere with the same thing. If you go to 24 weeks and add riba, they do pretty well. So in the last two or three slides, just talk about genotype three. So another question for you, and Susanna kind of asked a different version of this, so hopefully um, this will be a gimme. So in which scenario do the guidelines not recommend RAV testing? So treatment experienced for SoftVel, treatment naive cirrhotic SoftVel, treatment experienced and cirrhotic prior to SoftVel, or it's never recommended for SoftVel. Go ahead. Okay, good. Right? 68% of you, because in this group, the guidelines at least already recommend adding ribavirin anyway. As you remember, that was the 89% group that Susanna showed you. Um, so these other populations, um, the guidelines do recommend using resistance testing if you have the Y93H adding ribavirin in those top two groups. And here's just some of the data Susanna showed you, this, so I won't belabor this point, but this is the actual resistance data in soft filpatosphere. So again, um, if they had RAVs, it dropped to 88%. And then if you look at just the Y93H, which 9% had in Astral 3 at 1% level, 84% SVR. Um, what we don't have is any clinical data that says, says adding ribavirin in that scenario is going to make that go up. We're really there taking a big leap to the soft acladosphere data where just adding ribavirin saw a pretty dramatic increase in the response rates in GT3. And then I'll just leave this up. This is the last slide that kind of tries to summarize generally what's in the guidelines right now about resistance testing in the populations where you either should do it or would consider it at this point in time. I think that's it, right? Yeah. Okay, I'll leave that. Thanks. All right, so we can take, I think, a few, a few questions before um, we get into the case-based discussion. Sure. Yeah, I, ha I had my first case of uh, 
Okay. And this is a one A, and it ended. It came back probably resistant to all of the NX five A's except for Vaclavazovir. So. Except for which one? Vaclavazovir. Uh, yeah. yeah. Do you remember what the yeah. variant was? No. Too late for the variant. Could be a twenty-eight. Yeah. Okay. Uh huh. And it had a Y ninety-three H. Oh. Hmm. So I just looked at. It. Yeah. Hmm, I'd be surprised. I don't. I don't know that I've gotten one back with velpatosphere on it. But the Y93H really would cause resistance to velpatosphere as well in a genotype 1A patient. So again, I guess kind of based on the theme. Why did you send it in the first place? Just because insurance. Because their prime, their preferred is Elvisphere Grzopovir. So, I mean, in that scenario, if it's a genotype 1A and you have a Y93H, I would say, you know, for Elbosphere Grizopia, you're going to have to do 16 weeks post riba with very few patients to suggest. I mean, you probably are still fine doing soft here for 12 weeks. If the patient, does the patient have other negative characteristics, cirrhosis, interferon failure, I think that's probably what I would do. Although the Y93H, again, is going to really cause high-fold resistance to any of the NS5A inhibitors. But this is one of those scenarios where it's not absolute, right? You're still going to use an NS5A. 